What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the MMA by the Numbers podcast, where we're taking a numbers-driven look into the world of mixed martial arts. I'm your host, Jason Chandel, and this episode is UFC Vegas 50, uh, UFC Vegas 53 by the numbers. I'm losing count here. Um, in this show, we are going to go through the stats behind all these fights. I'm going to talk about the numbers, break down the matchups, uh, highlight my favorite bets on the card, pick winners, really just dig into all the stats I can find here. Um, for for the, the size of a card and for how a kind of low profile this one is, we do have a ton of fights where we've got a, a good sample size on both sides here, so... Um, going to be nice to be able to get into most of the key matchups on this card. I'll be skipping by a couple where we just don't have uh, enough to really dig into any reliable numbers. Um, the first one I'm going to start off with, though, is one where actually it, it usually I would skip past it. We've only got a 22-minute sample size on one side, but I think there's enough here that we can really dig in and, and find some good betting value especially, and that's Gina Mazzani taking on Shanna Young. Mazzani is generally someone whose stats um, make her look a lot better than she is. And we look at her distance striking numbers, and, and obviously she's a grappler first, but with her distance striking numbers, we see 41% accuracy, 61% defense, and slightly outpacing her opponents. This is skewed, though, because most of the times she's been getting outclassed on the feet, she's been finished and finished early. Uh, and then we look at a fight like the Rachel Ozdovich decision, um, probably the best matchup you can get for distance striking in the UFC, honestly. Um, and that makes up over one third of Mazzani's distance striking time in the octagon. So when you look at those positive numbers on Mazzani, really, they don't mean anything. But her offensive grappling is there, particularly against weaker competition. I mean, she's got a 58% takedown accuracy rate despite averaging 8.1 attempts per 15 minutes. Usually when we see someone with a ton of volume and takedown attempts, we're looking for a lower takedown accuracy rate, even if they're a really good wrestler. We're usually seeing someone who's attempting in that 8 to 10 attempts per 15 minute range down more around like 40% accuracy. So for Mazzani to be up at 58% is really impressive. Uh, and she's also got a 43.2% control time. So over 40% of her octagon time has been spent holding control positions in the grappling. Now, obviously, this again is skewed by the fact that some of the fights where she wasn't able to get to the ground, she was just finished early. And then we get the Rachel Ostovich fight lasting 15 minutes where she had seven takedowns. Uh, we've got the Wu Yanan fight where, where Mazzani scored five takedowns on seven attempts, eight minutes of control time. So our numbers do get skewed, but then we've also got... Um, for example, the Lena Landsberg fight. And Landsberg had most of the control in that one. Landsberg cruised to an easy 30-27 win. But Mazzani did still rack up three minutes of control time and went two of two on her takedowns and landed more total strikes. And Landsberg, for all of her deficiencies, you know, she can fight a really grindy style. She does tend to get a lot of control. So Mazzani does have that potential, um, particularly against weaker opponents, to take advantage and, and to overwhelm with her grappling. And that's exactly why she lines up so well with Young. I mean, in Young's UFC career, obviously, like I said, small sample size, but she's only got a 58% takedown defense rate. Uh, she's allowed her opponents to hold control for over 50% of her octagon time as well at 53.7%. And she was finished on the ground by Stephanie Egger in her last fight. If we go back before the UFC as well, we, we get stats in her Dana White Contender Series fight. Well, she was taken down twice on three attempts, and we don't get control time stats from, from the Contender series, but taken down twice on three attempts and submitted. So Young's weakness lines up exactly with where Mazzani's strength is, and Young may be a bigger and stronger fighter here. We have seen her at bantamweight, I think, more than, than we have Mazzani, and she's coming down in weight here. Uh, I do think Mazzani's grappling is going to be enough to get the job done here, so I, I like her to take the win in this fight. Um, I think there's 
fair value and betting are straight up here at, at minus, uh, she's sitting around minus 170 right now. Some books still have her at, uh, at minus 159. But I also think there's quite a bit of value on Mazzani inside the distance. Um, that's at plus 240 on five dimes right now. Um, most books, it's about plus 200. I think this is a recent move on five dimes. So, that, you know, we may be getting even longer odds here. Um, I, I think that's that's a play I really like this week is, is that Mazzani inside the distance, you know, plus 200, plus 250 range. Um, but if you're not feeling that good about her finishing ability, I, I, I do st- still think there is value taking her straight up as well. Next, we jump up to the heavyweight division for one of the trickier fights, I think, this week from a betting standpoint. And that's Alexander Romanov against Chase Sherman. Uh, this one is obviously not a tricky one as far as picking a winner. There's a reason that Romanov is a, what is it now, minus 1,300 favorite. Um, Chase Sherman has not really been asked to defend much. With his, oh, minus 1,700, sorry, on Romanov. Um, Chase Sherman has not been asked to do much defensive grappling in the UFC. Um, in his last fight, he was taken down very quickly and finished by Jake Collier. Uh, that obviously lines up perfectly with Alexander Romanov's strength. Uh, he's only got 35 minutes of octagon time, but he's averaging 5.6 takedowns landed per 15 minutes. That's on 8.6 attempts. That is a 65% takedown accuracy rate. Uh, he spent almost 70% of his fight time holding control positions. Um, Romanov really is a, a phenom with his grappling here. Uh, finishes uh, in three of his four UFC wins. Probably going to make quick work of Chase Sherman. Sherman does have a couple of solid defensive wrestling performances in the UFC, but, you know, holding Parker Porter to 1 of 8 on his takedown attempts and holding Damian Grabowski to 0 of 5, that just, that doesn't mean a lot when you're coming up against, uh, against Romanov. And then looking at Sherman, I mean, his volume is, is rare for a heavyweight. He averages 14.2 distance strike attempts per minute, but he's constantly getting in firefights, which at heavyweight, it is not really a good sign. I mean, if you are throwing 14 strike attempts per minute from distance and you're a heavyweight and your opponents are actually coming back with about that many, it really suggests that your power is not enough to, to slow people down. I mean, in that Park Reporter fight, Sherman was outland. He landed 117 significant strikes. Great total at heavyweight, but he absorbed 149. He landed 88 against Arlovsky. Good total. Absorbed 105. Landed 79 against Augusto Sakai. Absorbed 111. So for as much as Sherman's pace is great and exciting... It's not enough to actually be effective. Um, and for all his finishes, you know, he's not overly powerful. It's not like his finishes throughout his career have been like one-strike knockouts. Um, even some of his UFC knockdowns, you know, feel like they're coming a little bit more from overwhelming. They're not that, you know, jarring heavyweight kind kind of knockout. So ultimately, it makes sense that he's a massive underdog. But I, my gut says, and and there's just not a big enough sample of of heavy underdogs at heavyweight to to have any real conclusions here statistically but my gut says a UFC heavyweight like even a borderline one like Sherman should probably never be like over plus 1000 we just don't see many big underdogs at heavyweight because the power keeps even even matchups that are real mismatches tend to be a little closer than they would be in lower weight classes because even the bad heavyweights have power and in in the UFC in general you know if you were to blindly bet say underdogs of like plus 300 or more like that that in general would would be very poor results for you. Worse than just blindly betting random fighters. Like betting big underdogs um, because they're big underdogs is is not a viable approach. At heavyweight, it's a lot different. But also, like I said, the sample size is a lot smaller. And if we look at some of the heavyweight fights where big underdogs have won that do kind of change up that trend, we see a couple disqualifications, which are hard to to really read a lot into. And the guys who we do see pulling off these upset are guys who were big underdogs despite having a lot of power. 
not the case with Chase Sherman here. So even though my gut says that I'm, I, I want to be interested in any heavyweight at plus 1,000, ultimately what I'm going to do here is just avoid betting this fight entirely. Next up, we slide over to the middleweight division where we've got Gerald Mearshart taking on Christoph Jocko. Mearshart is already the UFC's all-time middleweight submission leader, and, and it's not even close. He's got eight submissions. Next highest is a three-way tie between Damian Maia Talis Leitis and Husamar Palharis with five each. So three more. So even before this streak of three straight submissions in his last three fights for Mearshart, um, he was tied for, for the middleweight record. He has now crushed it. So obviously his submission game is super legit, and you don't rack up that many submissions without being able to get fights to the ground. You know, those jiu-jitsu guys who don't have takedowns don't end up racking up that kind of submission number. Uh, and Mearshart has a 42% takedown accuracy rate on 5.8 attempts per 15 minutes. One area to note, though, is that his control rate, considering his takedown volume of 23.3%, isn't overly special. And we actually see a 28.7% opponent control rate out of him. Part of that is because he's not often fully attempting to defend takedowns. He's usually trying to sweep off the matter or get a submission. So he's got a 35% takedown defense rate. But he also does work off his back for submissions, which, you know, tends to... Um, skew control numbers because ultimately the way it's scored is that I, I think basically with very few exceptions, if you're on your back, your opponent's being credited with the control. But with a dangerous jujitsu guy like Mearshart, um, if he's got guard, for example, it, it's not necessarily his opponent controlling the fight in that instance. So we see that low control rate and, and we do need to kind of contextualize that a little bit with, with what's going on in his fights and with where his strengths lie. The other thing that, that is noteworthy about Mearshart, I think, is obviously defensive striking would be the weakness we could find in his game. I mean, the, his his last two losses are uh, the Kemzak Khmayev knockout and the Ian Heinish knockout. Um, but his striking is probably better than he has the reputation for, just given how high profile those knockout losses were. He's got a 41% distance striking accuracy rate and a 60% defense rate. So he lands just about as accurately as his opponent's. Uh, and he does it while outpacing them, 12.4 attempts per minute, uh, rather than or compared to uh, 10.7 faced. Now, obviously, he's not a hugely impactful striker. We can look at the Eric Anders fight where, you know, Mearshart did outland Anders 72 to 64, but but ultimately lost the decision in that one because his strikes just weren't doing enough. But ultimately, yeah, Mearshart's striking is kind of fine enough to give him time to stay in fights and, and get into his wrestling and get into that submission game. Um, obviously, the fact that he's been knocked out a couple of times is is a concern, and, and those weren't the first times he's been knocked down in the UFC either. Uh, he was dropped against Oscar Picota in a fight that he ended up winning. So there is a hole in Mearshart's game against power strikers, absolutely. But his distance striking probably better than he gets credit for. And against Christoph Jocko, we don't need to be overly concerned about the power. I mean, Jocko only has a 0.51% knockdown rate in the UFC. That's actually lower than Mearshart's. Um, and we haven't seen him knock anyone down since uh, Uriah Hall in a fight he lost. And, and his other knockdown came against Tamden McCrory, who, um, you know, probably not quite UFC level, level competition. Not a guy that had much success on, on the feet, especially in the octagon. So... Not a huge power threat coming from Jocko, and, and there's also not a lot of efficiency coming out of him either, with 30% accuracy compared to 63% uh, defense from distance, meaning his opponents are landing a full 7% more accurately than he is. So even though he is uh, outpacing them, he's getting outlanded by about 0.1 distance strikes per minute. 
He's fairly good at controlling fights when he does get into the grappling. His 21.3% control rate isn't huge, but that's coming on only 3.8 takedown attempts per 15 minutes, so he is converting those takedown attempts into a fair amount of control. Ultimately, though, grappling with Mearshart's a dangerous proposition, and, and striking with him isn't as easy as it maybe looks, and, and Jocko not necessarily the guy to take advantage of a potential weakness there. Jocko's definitely got the kind of gritty, grindy style where he does rack up just enough control, and, and he there's a reason he's won four of his last five, but we also have to take into account that two of those four wins were split decisions. Um, he outlanded his opponents in those two fights by a combined one significant strike. So even that gritty style, I mean, when he's winning and when he's succeeding, it's kind of keeping fights close and keeping his opponents in the fights, which is obviously not something you want to do against a, a really dangerous submission grappler like Gerald Mearshart. So I think this one's quite close, and I actually think I slightly favor Mearshart to win it. Um, he opened at plus 105, and I, I was really surprised to see that the odds have really been moving in the other direction. So this kind of becomes a spot, and, and a con it's a concept I talk about a lot, where the line feels off by enough that I, it almost feels like there's something I'm missing, and I, I think this is something that everyone should do and, and kind of take into account humility-wise with, with betting. I mean, even in a smaller sport like MMA, betting markets are so accurate that if you think the line is way way off there's a pretty good chance that you're the one who's wrong like yes you can have an edge over line consistently like that's how winning betters exist but if you think a line is you know 30 percent off if, if you think someone is 50 percent to win a fight but you're getting them at plus 400 like it, there's just no way that you're right that that person is actually 50 percent to win the fight almost without exception you know you get into some niche cases or with like when cm punk was making his debut but in a typical fight, if you think a line is off by enough, like it, you should probably look closer into what's going on here. That's almost what I get into with this Mearshart line. You know, a difference of like 10% and thinking this fight should be, he should be closer to 50% to, to win and, and getting him a plus 150. Like that's that's a pretty big gap and it does give me some pause. I know it's kind of counterintuitive. The the more confident I am in the in the fighter, the, the more concerned I am, but you know, something to keep in mind and that's definitely going to be kind of going through my mind and, and have me looking deeper as, as fight week rolls on. But ultimately I really like Gerald Mearshart at plus 150 here. We'll drop down to featherweight next for Darren Elkins against Tristan Connolly. Elkins uh, been in the UFC forever. He's got almost five hours of octagon time. He's got uh, the six most total strikes landed in UFC history. And for Connolly, just a 30-minute sample in the octagon. So not a ton to draw from with Connolly, especially that's only coming against two opponents. But there are a few things I want to kind of get into in this fight. And, and that's because Darren Elkins highlights some, some interesting statistical trends. So something that stands out right off the bat with Elkins is his comically inefficient distance striking. He's got a 58% distance striking defense rate, which I, I talk about this ad nauseum, but it, you know, if he was landing around 42%, you know, in the mid 40s, like that 58% defense, not necessarily bad. Um, because on average, you know, overall UFC average is necessarily gonna be accuracy and defense on opposite sides of 50. Um, but Elkins combines that 58% defense rate with a 28% distance striking accuracy rate. So his opponents are landing at 42%, he is landing at 28%. That's a gap of 14 percentage points. There are a couple of factors that make that not a huge concern, though, at least from a uh, winning fights and, and betting perspective. Uh, one is that he combines it with good pace, 13.8 distance strike attempts per minute while facing 11.1. So he's attempting about one and a quarter distance strikes for every one that he faces. And ultimately, striking pace and 
contextualizing that to be relative to the opponent, so the the rate at which you outpace your opponent, is a better predictor of success, um, both winning and embedding markets, than accuracy is. It may be ugly, it may look less skillful in some fighters, but looking good and and having crisp looking technique and and looking skilled isn't what wins fights and and wins money in betting markets. The other thing to combine that with is that Elkins, over a huge sample, as I mentioned, he's he's pushing five hours of octagon time. If this one goes to decision, he'll crack the five-hour mark. Over that huge sample, he has been a very good wrestler. 8.1 takedown attempts per 15 minutes with a 33% accuracy rate. So as I mentioned, that high volume number does mean that that accuracy is pretty good. Uh, And he's also got a 36.3% control rate. There are only eight fighters in UFC history who've uh, fought for over four hours and have maintained a control rate above 33%. So pretty good company for Darren Elkins. And even if we kind of expand out to include fighters with less than four hours of octagon time, um, combining that high control rate with a high striking output relative to your opponent, like that is a very good predictor of, of success. And honestly, I, you know, I would speculate that it's a good predictor of success in betting markets because not only does it predict winners, because, you know, if something predicts winners, but everyone knows it does and agrees that it does, it's not going to translate to betting value. But that kind of style predicts winning in a way that's ugly and that people don't like. And so that people probably underrate that would just kind of make sense intuitively to me as I'm trying to think of why a betting market would consistently be wrong. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at a guy with this ugly and yet effective style, and that definitely pushes me towards him from a betting standpoint. Now, if we look at Connolly, there's there's some clear spots to, to get excited about Connolly here. Um, his strength obviously lies in his grappling, uh, despite being one and one to start his UFC career. Uh, he does have a 23.5% control rate. Uh, nine of his 14 pro wins have come by submission, and 11 of the 14 have been finishes. And that lines up pretty well with the fact that Elkins only has a 56% takedown defense rate. Uh, But ultimately, Elkins' low takedown defense doesn't come on a huge sample. He faces just two and a half takedown attempts per 15 minutes. uh, And he's only got a 15.2% opponent control rate. Um, Some of his struggles with defensive grappling um, either have been a long time ago or have come against um, some really high-level opponents, you know, taken down three times. Uh, on six att- or on five attempts and, and gave up two and a half minutes of control time to Hikardo Lamas. So, um, you know, Connolly probably not on Hikardo Lamas' level as a grappler, so not really as concerned about it here. Um, so all, all that to be said, I, I like Elkins to win this fight, uh, and I think there's uh, I think there's betting value on him here. Um, he's another one where some books have been kind of slow moving the lines, it feels like. He's minus 159 a few places still, um, like, uh, like we're seeing from Mazzani. Um, but even getting Elkins, you know, what, what some of the sharper books have Matt right now, minus 167, uh, getting up into that minus 170 range, uh, I think there's definitely some value there. Next up, we have Jared Gordon taking on Grant Dawson. Gordon is a guy who stands out uh, statistically in terms of the strikes he throws while he's grappling. If we look at, uh, say, like a metric like grappling, grappling significant strikes, let's say, which is just combining clinch and ground strikes, Gordon ranks top 15 in UFC history through most uh, kind of like per fight and per minute volume metrics there. Both his clinch and ground striking has been really good, and he's been really aggressive at throwing not just light ground and pound strikes and, and not just light strikes while he's grappling to, to stay busy, but putting a lot of power into them and, and really committing to them. And he's given himself a ton of opportunities with a 40% takedown accuracy rate and 45.4% control rate. 
For a guy who's over an hour and a half of octagon time now, those are some really impressive stats. He's also got solid efficiency with his uh, distance striking numbers at 48% accuracy with 64% defense. There's still room for some serious concerns here, though, and the the first with his distance striking being that he's not outpacing his opponents. Um, He's actually facing 15.4 distance strike attempts per minute, and never a good sign when you're throwing a ton of volume and your opponents aren't really concerned about it and are throwing even more volume back at you. Um, And the other thing is uh, his defensive grappling numbers aren't great, uh, with a 50% takedown defense rate and and an 11% opponent control rate. Uh, And he's done all of this against a very low level of competition. Now, I think generally level of competition is is over-accounted for um, in betting markets, but this is a spot where I don't necessarily think it's the case because Gordon's a guy who almost feels like he's racked up. You know, he is a UFC veteran at this point, um, but there's just a huge discrepancy in when he faces... Uh, you know, a step up in competition. And and someone like Charles Oliveira is obviously almost too big of a jump to even think about. But, you know, that fight, if it lasted, if Gordon managed to survive longer than 86 seconds, that fight could have really hurt his stats. Uh, same with the Diego Fajaya fight. Gordon was outlanded 29 to 8 in significant strikes, had his only takedown attempt stuffed, and got finished. And that was all in less than two minutes. That was in 118 seconds. If he managed to survive for three rounds against Fajaya, we would have had a very different story in his career stats. His distance striking numbers would be much worse. His offensive grappling numbers probably would be a lot worse. So this is a spot where we actually really do want to account for level of competition in the overall stats because of the way the fight times are skewing things. Now, if we look at Grant Dawson, um, he's not quite as efficient from distance. Uh, he's got 43% accuracy rate with a 57% defense rate. So kind of a push there landing as accurately as his opponents, but he does outpace his opponents 13.5 to 11.7 in attempts per minute. So he's outlanding them 5.74 to 5.03. We've also seen some really good offensive wrestling out of Grant Dawson, who's got a 60% control rate, uh, with over an hour of fight time to his name, uh, 31% takedown accuracy rate, not quite as impressive, but he's doing that on 10.9 attempts per 15 minutes. And he's also looked pretty good against a capable grappler when he fought uh, Leo Santos and had over eight minutes of control time in that fight. You know, Dawson was only one of 13 on his takedown attempts there, and, and he did get taken down himself. But racking up a ton of control time against Leo Santos and, and, and winning that fight ultimately is a very good sign because I would say Santos probably a better overall grappler than Jared Gordon. So despite some of those awesome stats and, and the fact that Jared Gordon is a guy that I really like... Um, Against a lot of those lower level opponents, he's a guy I've bet on a lot over his UFC career so far. Um, I, I think this fight is probably priced fairly. Uh, I like Grant Dawson to win, but I also don't think there's any any real betting value on the line here. Next up, I'm going to jump to the co-main event for another heavyweight matchup. This one between Jake Collier and Andre Arlovsky. Arlovsky truly in a class of his own when it comes to longevity in the UFC heavyweight division. He has 37 UFC heavyweight fights. That is 10 more than the second-placed Frank Mir. He has 22 wins in the heavyweight division. That is five more than the second-placed Derek Lewis. Accordingly, if we look at significant strikes landed, Arlovsky's 1,336 crushes the second-placed Junior Dos Santos's 1,109. Nobody else has even 1,000. And if we look at fight time, of course, Arlovsky blows away the competition again. Almost two hours more. In this fight, he may get to two hours more than Junior Dos Santos. Uh, Dos Santos, four hours, seven minutes, and one second. Arlovsky, five hours, 54 minutes, 51 seconds. If this fight makes it midway through the second round, not only will Arlovsky be the first heavyweight, 
but he would become just the 10th fighter in UFC history to reach six hours of octagon time. All that is to say, uh, his career-long stats are probably not what we want to be judging him on here. Are the stats from his 2001 matchup with Rico Rodriguez or his 2002 matchup with Pedro Hizo going to be really um, mean anything at all against Jake Collier this week? No. Uh, but something that is kind of helpful here is that late in his career, Arlovsky, for as much as he's finding success, uh, it's been a while since he's had that those kind of big steps up in competition. So, I mean, if we look at his six fights since 2020, uh, his best opponent by, by a pretty big shot was Tom Aspinall, but it, it was a lot of these kind of mid-range heavyweights, which is a group that Jake Collier probably fits in. So we can look at these fights to try to draw um, some more impactful stats here for Arlovsky. And in that sample, we see him with a 45.6% distance striking accuracy rate and a 55.2% defense rate. So efficiency-wise, he's, he's been about even with his opponents, and he's also only outpaced his opponents 1.03 to 1. So ultimately, Arlovsky's striking has kind of been right in line with this kind of mid-tier heavyweight group. And if we look at Collier, 41% distance striking accuracy with 57% defense, so not great efficiency, but he averages 16.9 attempts per minute while facing 11.4. Like I said, pace very important, more so than efficiency, and especially pace relative to your opponent. And with this huge edge in pace against his opponents, Jake Collier's outlanding his opponent's um, by two distance strikes per minute, 2.04. We've also got a common opponent we can look at in Carlos Felipe. These fights were basically just kickboxing matches, but in both times. So we, we get a good sample here. And, you know, we can't read too much into stats coming against a common opponent, but we see some trends pop up that probably continue through their other numbers where they landed with similar accuracy against Felipe, 48% for Arlovsky, 46% for Collier. Um, Arlovsky had the much better defense rate in that fight, held Felipe to 36%, so uh, had a 64% accuracy rate of his own. Collier only had a 52% accuracy rate, holding Felipe to 48 um, But Collier did outpace Felipe by almost 1.5 to 1, while it was just 1.2 to 1 for Arlovsky. So ultimately, in a spot like this where we've got um, kind of pace versus efficiency, um, I'm usually going to side with pace, especially when that efficiency is is not really going to kind of blow you away. So I think this is a close matchup. I mean, Arlovsky, the kind of guy who's got enough um, impact in his strikes to win decisions, even when he's getting outlanded. Uh, Tanner Bozer outlanded him 68 to 34. Jared Vendera uh, outlanded him 70 to, to uh, 64. But I will lean slightly towards Collier's pace here. I'll put this fight around 50-50. Um, pressed to pick a winner, I, I guess I'd take Arlovsky just inclined to lean towards the favorite when it feels like a coin flip, but um, being that close of a decision for me, of course, means that getting plus 122 line on Jake Collier is, is some value that I quite like here, so I'll be betting Collier in this fight. And now, next up, we have the bantamweight main event between Rob Font and Marlon Vera. Vera's a guy I was definitely pretty wrong about early in his career. He was putting up kind of middling numbers um, but pulling off finishes, which is usually a bad combination. It's usually not a sustainable combination, especially when it's just happening early in someone's career. We're usually going to see them regress and start finding a lot less success. But Vera was young. He's continued to grow, and he's continued to show a lot of finishing ability. I mean, he's not even 30, and he's already the all-time UFC bantamweight leader for finishes uh, at with nine. That beats out TJ Dillashaw's eight and Uriah Faber's seven to round out the top three. Despite his improvements and the way that that's moved some of his numbers, though, I mean, looking at his recent stats, you know, we can take 
looking at, say, his last six fights, trying to capture kind of a higher level of competition here, um, he's got a really great 53.3% distance striking accuracy rate, but with just a 49.5% defense rate and with a 0.88 to 1 distance strike attempt ratio. So the elite accuracy is great and and would kind of outweigh that defense rate because he's still landing a couple percent more accurately than his opponents, but that that pace is definitely something to be concerned about. And if we look at it, it, it's not only the fact that he's fought, you know, Frankie Edgar and Jose Aldo against Davy Grant. Vera was outlanded 75 to 61 from distance. And I mean, that one obviously was not an especially close fight. Um, I think Vera even got 30-26 on one of the scorecards. But those distance striking numbers, I think, kind of showcase that there is still some room for concern there. And Rob Font absolutely has the style to to really push Vera and and to to really exploit that issue with pacing. Font averages 16.2 distance strike attempts per minute. That is elite. And he does it while facing just 11.2. He's not only throwing an absurd number of strikes, but he's doing it in such a way that his opponents aren't able to keep up with him at all. And he does it with a 42% accuracy and 63% defense rate. So he's also more efficient than his opponents by about 5%. So that leaves him outlanding them 6.8 to 4.1 per minute. That's a gap of plus 2.63 that he's got overall, uh, compared to Vera, who over his career is outlanded, so he's got a negative of 0.41 per minute. Massive difference. Difference of three distance strikes per minute between the two of them. And for as much as, yes, Vera's got a ton of power, we've seen it, his knockdown rate of 1.19% isn't like mind-blowingly higher than, than Font's uh, 0.82%. Yes, it's about 50% higher than Font's, but... Knockdown rate is inherently such a small sample kind of stat that a gap like that isn't super meaningful. It's usually like we're looking for the outliers in that stat for it to have a huge meaningful impact. And obviously Font landing so many more strikes has that many more opportunities to score a knockdown. So not really sure Vera's power is enough uh, to be an edge on the feet here. And I will say that that Font's pace isn't all predictive. I mean, we have the Jose Aldo fight where he was actually outlanding Aldo in significant strikes in some of those rounds and, and was clearly not winning the rounds. And Vera's efficient striking can, you know, be the style that can win fights while while not quite landing as much. But that's really never something you want to rely on. When we're looking kind of forward looking from the stats here, it's it's really tough to predict statistically when someone's going to be able to kind of overcome a significant strike deficit um, it's really just not something you want to have to rely on I will say Font's defensive grappling is a concern in this fight Uh, Vera in addition to that power obviously has a great submission game and and he's got a 42% takedown accuracy rate but he's only landing 0.82 takedowns per 15 minutes he doesn't get in with a lot of wrestling volume Uh, he's only got a 13.9% control rate and and while Font's only got a 55% takedown defense rate and and he's been taken down in six straight fights, Vera's submission wins ultimately have mostly come against much lower level of competition, and, and he's not racked up a ton of control time, as I said, and despite his poor takedown defense, Font's opponent control rate is still below 20%, so it's not like this is a massive kind of Kevin Holland situation. And so with that being the case, I, I still think Font's pace is ultimately enough for me to give him the edge in this fight, so I, I like Font to win, Um Line has kind of moved a little closer to evens than, than it opened when Font was down in the minus 150 range. I think at minus 135, there's some really good value on Rob Font in the main event as well. 
So that does it for this week's show. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you're looking for more stats or you have any questions for me or, or you want to see more numbers behind all these fights, uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at NumbersMMA. And if you enjoy the show, rating and review would mean a lot. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next week for UFC 274. Good luck with your bets this week.